Hello and welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation in North Carolina. He's also on the board of the John Locke Foundation, a think tank he helped to found, and he's a syndicated columnist. He's the author of many books, including a couple of recent historical fantasies, Mountain Folk and Forest Folk. And finally, he's president of the Carolina chapter of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, a fan society. He joins us by phone as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. John, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate you having me. Why is A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs a great book? Well, first and foremost, A Princess of Mars is a is a ripping good yarn. It's it's a really fun story. It's entertaining. It's imaginative. And it should be enjoyed on its own terms as a fun piece of literature. But it's much more than that. It is the first published story by Edgar Rice Burroughs, published uh, a little over 100 years ago now, and not only launched the career of one of the most influential writers of popular literature in, in our history, but also was not necessarily the first, but one of the first uh, bits of fiction uh, to establish the genre that is sometimes called planetary romance, or otherwise called sword and planet. In other words, a great big chunk of the subsequent fantasy science fiction type literature that was published owes some sort of a debt, sometimes indirect, but often direct debt, to A Princess of Mars and the subsequent books that Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote about his his characters on Mars. So it, it's fun story. It's also something to read to get a better sense of where a lot of our popular culture came from, not just science fiction stories and, and novels, but, but great movies, so Star Wars, Avatar, Superman, a lot of these pop culture icons that we're familiar with derive either directly or indirectly from the character of a princess of Mars, the main character, John Carter. We're going to talk about all of that. John Carter, the central character, the story that surrounds him in A Princess of Mars, the, the publication history of this novel, its incredible influence and importance to genre literature and, and movies and more. The amazing author behind it all, including his other creations, which include that famous character Tarzan and a lot more. But John, let's start with how this book begins. On the first pages of A Princess of Mars, we meet Captain John Carter. He's a Civil War veteran, and he writes in the opening line in the first person, quote, I am a very old man. How old? I do not know, unquote. Who is this guy, and why doesn't he know his own age? Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Uh, it, it's a tantalizing beginning. Remember that Edgar Rice Bros at this point uh, had never published anything. This was the very first story he ever wrote for publication. And that very first line in the framing device at the beginning of the book is, again, not unheard of. A lot of pulp writers at the time would have something like a framing device. You would, you were going to tell somebody an imaginative story, and you would suggest the fiction that you discovered the manuscript or that it was handed to you by somebody else or that you actually went to some uh, forbidden city or lost kingdom and you discovered the story, something like that. 
In the case of uh, A Princess of Mars, what Burroughs does is he sets up, I think, I don't know if this is unique, but it's certainly one of the first times, or if not the first time, that a story like this is set up where the writer is a relative. So John Carter, as you describe, is a Civil War veteran, fought on the Confederate side, and Edgar Rice Burroughs presents himself as John Carter's nephew. Now, this is not necessarily literally nephew, because John Carter mysteriously does not remember when he was born and only seems to be 30 years old. So he's around 30 years old when young Edgar Rice Burroughs meets him at the family's plantation in Virginia. This is before the Civil War. He is around 30 years old much later when he is visiting with a much older Edgar Rice Burroughs, his supposed nephew. And in fact, John Carter never ages, even even though uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs becomes an old man and John Carter still appears to be 30. Uh, interestingly, while many parts of this story and all of the John Carter stories that Edgar Rice Burroughs writes, uh, there's at least a kind of an attempt to explain scientifically why otherwise fantastic things are happening. There is never any effort at all in this book or any subsequent book to explain why John Carter can't remember his origins, can't remember his childhood, and always seems to be 30 years old. It's never explained, which is kind of fun, actually. Ageless and mysterious. We know we're going to go to Mars. It's in the title of the book, but it does start on Earth with John Carter. Where is he as the book begins? At this point, uh, Carter has, after the Civil War, gone to Arizona, prospected for gold, apparently successfully. He goes to Arizona around 1866. You know that he has then moved to New York around 1877. Uh, he has gets an occasional visit from Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the framing device sets it up that in 1886, Burroughs gets a telegram from his uncle. He goes to see him in New York and the cottage that he lives on the Hudson River and discovers that John Carter has been found dead. And so he then goes and opens the safe that John Carter has maintained, and he finds there some instructions and a manuscript. The instructions are about how John Carter is to be buried. He's to be buried in a tomb that is well ventilated and that can be opened only from the inside of the tomb. <laughs> and then after you learn that, the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs narrative concludes the, the foreword by saying he opens up the manuscript and this is the story that he found. The rest of the novel is the manuscript that, that Edgar Rice Burroughs reports that he found in John Carter's safe. And the book begins, that, that manuscript begins as a kind of Western. Certainly does. It's set in 1866. In fact, all of the event, almost all of the events of the novel, though most of them occur off-planet, they all occur in 1866, Earth time. So quite literally, you're in the West. You're in Arizona, a territory, remember, at this time. Uh, he's prospecting for gold with a friend. The friend dies early on. That's There's no spoiler there. It's very obvious very quickly that the friend dies. And in fact, Carter is chased by Apaches, ends up in a cave. The Apaches are going to come after him in the cave. They hear a strange noise and run off. So quite literally, the first chapter is a Western. I mean, there's actually a kind of traditional chase, shooting pistols on horseback kind of thing. By the time you get into the second chapter, you discover that he has had a, again, never explained feeling of lethargy. He sinks into unconsciousness. 
he kind of wakes up for a while, hears some weird noises in the back, and smells a strange smell. And then there's a jerk, and he essentially uh, engages in what we would now call astral projection. His sort of spirit body leaves his real body. He looks down at it, sitting there in the cave. He walks out to the ledge of the cave. He looks up at the night sky. He sees the planet Mars. He stretches his arms out to Mars. There is a brief period of motion and cold, and then he wakes up on Mars. When this book was written in 1914, scientists didn't know a lot about Mars. You could see it through a telescope, but that's about it. Today, of course, we know that the red planet is dry and lifeless. What is this one like? What is the Mars encountered by John Carter? It is dry. It's not entirely lifeless, but it is absolutely a dying planet. It is presented that way from the beginning. It becomes very obvious that uh, Mars used to have a different climate, that it used to be luxurious, there used to be oceans, there used to be great civilizations, and that much of the civilizations uh, have de- either declined or been been destroyed by these marauders, which we'll talk about in a moment. The oceans have dried up. And indeed, uh, fairly early in the novel, you learn that, Mar- that life on Mars is really only possible because one of the people who reside, still reside on Mars, the Red Martians, have invented and operate an atmosphere plant that rejuvenates the atmosphere. Otherwise, everyone would die. That sounds familiar. Probably are familiar with the story turned movie Total Recall, which uh, partly based on again and um, the John Carter story. Remember, there's an atmosphere plant in that movie too. The, the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of it, you may recall. Well, similarly here, Mars is a dying planet. And that becomes very obvious from the beginning. And interestingly also, John Carter knows immediately when he wakes up that he's on Mars. There's no doubt in his mind that he's on Mars. This becomes even more obvious to him when he tries to get up and then flies into the air. It turns out that, of course, Mars has lower gravity. So someone from Earth, from a higher gravity planet, has muscles and tendons that are designed for the higher gravity. Therefore, on Mars, John Carter has uh, some superhuman abilities, apparently superhuman abilities. He can can leap high into the air, and he's incredibly strong. Uh, This has to do with the difference in gravity between Earth and Mars. As I alluded to earlier, John, that may also sound familiar to anyone who has ever read or watched Superman stories, where Superman has greater powers on Earth because he came from a higher, well, partly because he came from a higher gravity planet. That's another indication of the influence of John Carter, the John Carter stories, starting with The Princess of Mars, on subsequent pop fiction. And it's a little touch of what we might call hard SF, which is real hard science informing the story here, this idea that that you might have a kind of superpower on another planet, an Earthling might have a kind of superpower if you went to a world with with lesser gravity, as Mars does have. But then it is also this fantastic novel. You not only can transport from a cave in Arizona to Mars, but you encounter this world of Martians. You already mentioned that there were types of Martians, but but fill us in on the anthropology of the planet. Who are the Martians? The first Martians that John Carter meets look nothing like him. They're up to 15 feet tall. They have six 
uh, limbs, not four. They have they have two arms, two legs, and two intermediate limbs that usually act as arms, but can also act as legs. At least that's how Burroughs describes them. These are green-skinned. They have strange ears and eyes. They don't really have noses. They have sort of slits. So they're very different. If this isn't the first description of Martians as green, it's certainly one of them and helps to explain why we still associate Martians or aliens as little green men. They're, they're not little, but they are green. The other thing that immediately presents itself to John Carter about these green Martians is that they uh, are uh, they reproduce by eggs and that the eggs are hatched in, in common hatcheries. There's incubators where the eggs sit under the the wheat Martian sun for a long time, and then they hatch. And fairly early in the novel, you learn that these green Martians do not form traditional families, that in fact they, they, have, they own everything in common, including their spouses. Uh, this is not portrayed in any positive sense. In fact, there's a very obvious political angle here about communism we can talk about in a moment. But the green Martians, different from... Uh, for the ways I describe it, also in the way they act. They, they aren't as emotional. They don't form emotional attachments. They're cruel. When they laugh, that is rarely because they are amused by a joke. It's because they're amused by bloodshed or something cruel that is happening in front of them. So those are the first Martians that you meet. Later, though, you discover that there are other Martians that most of the populations of the planet are more sized and, and depicted like a, an Earthman. Uh, there are red Martians who are so-called dominant race of the planet. Most of the civilization of the planet consists of these red-skinned Martians that look otherwise human but have coppery skin, dark features, presumably somewhat less uh, developed musculature than John Carter. That's the whole idea about the difference in the, in the build because of the gravity. They're also, as you learn in subsequent books, actually you learn about it in the first novel, but you meet them in subsequent books. Uh, other Martians that are humanoid that have different uh, colors. There are black Martians that live in the in the poles. There are white Martians called therns that are sort of religious figures, sort of villainous priests. There are yellow Martians that live on the North Pole. And uh, these groups all have their own histories, their own anthropology, as you mentioned. And sometimes when people look back on the John Carter stories, including A Princess of Mars, and they, they hear about these racial categories, uh, they, start, they start getting nervous. And they're not wrong to be somewhat nervous. This is, this is a story written in 1911 and published in 1912, most of the other stories published in the subsequent two decades. There are certainly racial differences. But even though Edgar Rice Burroughs, I wouldn't describe him as a as someone that we might consider today racially enlightened. He had a variety of different views. But uh, he has a lot to say about racial relationships and cross-racial relationships and ridiculing the nation that there the notion that there is a superior race. Indeed, the the black-skinned Martians in uh, the Barsoom tales are actually, in many ways, the most dominant. They're, they're not as numerous, but they're, they're certainly not in any way described as inferior. So, so anyway, the, there are racial aspects to the story. There's also, as I alluded to, a religious aspect to the story that is 
talked about in A Princess of Mars and then developed at much greater detail in the subsequent two books in the series, the first one actually being called The Gods of Mars. So it's a swashbuckling story with a hero and uh, a princess, as you can tell by the title, and monsters. But keep in mind that in this very first of his written stories, Edgar Rice Burroughs is building a world. The world has a climate, it has an anthropology, it has, a, it has an ancient history, it has religious conflict, it has racial conflict, all built into this very first novel. The book is called A Princess of Mars. John Carter is no princess. Who is the princess of Mars? The princess is Deja Thoris, though apparently Edgar Rice Burroughs himself preferred to pronounce her name as Deja. Most fans, I think, still, most readers probably say Deja Thoris. And Deja Thoris is a princess of a city on Mars called Helium. It appears to be the largest and most advanced of the cities. It's also the capital of a broader city-state of Helium that actually encompasses several other cities. So she is a princess, not of the whole planet, but of, we might say, the most advanced civilization, most advanced city-state on the planet. Fairly early in the novel, he encounters her when the Green Martians that I described earlier attack a flotilla of red Martian airships. On Mars, there are airships that travel the air using using rays. Uh, imagine a sort of a Zeppelin type of ship, except it doesn't have a big balloon. It's sort of rays that, that propel the the uh, ship from the ground and then propellers that actually propel it like, a, like an airship. So the Green Martians attack the flotilla. Uh, Deja Thoris's ship crashes. They capture her, and eventually John Carter falls in love with Deja Thoris, rescues her from harm on multiple occasions. To make it clear that uh, there's something good that's going to happen of this, they do in fact marry at the end of the book, at almost the end of the book. So he arrives as a stranger, strange white skin. They have not seen a white skin person at this point. Either the Green Martians or the Red Martians are unfamiliar with white skinned. Uh, people that are not these priests. So he arrives with no friends and not knowing the language. And by the end of the book, he has become a great hero. He has married the princess of the, the major power of the planet. And indeed, at the very end of the book, he appears to save the entire planet uh, from harm. And so that that's how big this story is. It's not a very long novel, but it's a very big story. John Carter is strong, he's courageous, he's decent, he saves the princess. Is she just a damsel in distress? Is there more to Deja Thoris? A great question. People might assume, because I've just described the story uh, in stark terms, that this is a damsel in distress story. There are aspects of it that are like that. But it's important to know a couple of things about her character. One of them is that Deja Thoris is in this flotilla of airships from Helium uh, because they're engaged in scientific research. The, the, the scientists of Helium are the ones that uh, built and maintain the atmosphere plant that everybody's life depends on. Every creature on Mars depends on the scientists of Helium. And she it's not spelled out specifically in the book, though, if you ever saw the movie that came out about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, she is actually described in the movie as a scientist herself. That would not be inconsistent with the way the book is describing her as part of this scientific expedition. So she's not simply a damsel in distress. She's involved in solving a very important problem facing the entire planet. 
And uh, she, in this story and in subsequent stories, shows herself to be uh, resilient and uh, remarkably capable of often saving herself, or at least putting herself in a better position to be rescued by John Carter. So she's not just waiting around for someone to help her. She's a lot more of an active character than that. There's indeed a, a wonderful scene when she is brought in front of the leader of the Green Martians who have captured her. And she proceeds at this point not to cower or to be afraid or to beg or anything. She sort of takes it upon herself at this moment to act as a diplomat for her country and to propose that the Green Martians and the Red Martians make peace. This is when she makes a lengthy speech critiquing their communistic ways. She actually calls it a community idea, but that's what is obviously being referred to as a sort of communist form of government. And she argues that because they own everything in common, they actually own nothing. They have no property and they have no rights in property. They have no real relationships between men and women. And this is what has, has created so many problems for the Green Martians. They're really just scavengers and scroungers and, and barbarians. They don't build or create anything. They live in cities that have been evacuated or abandoned by, by others. And she makes this pitch. Now, they don't accept the pitch, but it, it's an interesting moment. It's one of the very first things you hear from Dejah Thoris. It is not pleading for help or begging for mercy or cowering in fear. It is speaking very forthrightly as the representative of one of the major governments of the planet. So again, I think that's, it argues that Dejah Thoris is, is much more than a damsel in distress. The book has politics partly because Mars has politics. It describes a political situation on Mars. But you mentioned communism and so forth. Did Edgar Rice Burroughs have a different message for his readers? And I'll just, I'll just go on and, and observe that, that communism in, in 1914 is, gosh, this is even before the Russian Revolution. So, so what is he saying here to his audience, and what might we draw from it? Burroughs uh, had political views. Some of them uh, we might describe today as sort of politically, he was a political conservative, uh, though his views are hard to pigeonhole sometimes. But generally speaking, that would be true. He was very much interested in freedom, both the individual freedom and the freedom of nations. Uh, he was hostile to the idea that uh, human beings, while having equal rights, uh, should also have sort of equal status or equal outcomes, equal incomes. He, he, he was not egalitarian in that way. And he saw communism, socialism, and fascism, which he later uh, critiques and attacks very directly in his novels, as all betrayals of these traditional American principles of equal before the law, private property, individual freedom, uh, national uh, freedom. But uh, this is, as you're, you're, you're right, he's writing before the Russian Revolution. So Bolshevism has not been realized into state yet, and he's writing about communism here. Not many years later, he actually wrote an explicit anti-communist track called Under the Red Flag. It's kind of a future tale. He imagined Chicago under the rule of communists. And he couldn't get it published. And he thought one of the reasons he couldn't get it published is because the publishing world, even in the late teens, early 20s, was already too left-wing. So he redid the novel as a science fiction novel and treated the communists as moon men rather than uh, you know Soviets or something. 
And he did get that published. And so the, the story in, in not very disguised form was published as one of his science fiction novels later. So he, he has, as you alluded to earlier, his most famous character, Tarzan, uh, which also appeared in, in 1912, just as Princess of Mars appeared in 1912. At one point, he actually has Tarzan fighting the communist. Joseph Stalin sends an assassin to kill him. So Edgar Rice Burroughs had political views. They were certainly evident in his stories. But they're not political allegories for the most part. The politics are, are there. He's critiquing certain aspects of political life that he was witnessing in the teens, 20s, and 30s. Um, Tarzan fights in both World War I and World War II. So there's connections to the real world, but it's important not to think of Edgar Rice Burroughs as a historical fiction writer. He, he did some histor- history research, but most of his works are imagination. Uh, they don't always connect to reality. As you described, Mars is impossible to live on. He sort of knew that. Everybody kind of knew that, even in 1912, when they were reading the story, at least suspected that was true. Uh, And they were willing to make that imaginative leap in order to enjoy the story. Much later, people tried to reconcile all this and imagine, well, maybe John Carter, when he leaves Earth to go to Mars, maybe he isn't just traveling in space, he's traveling in time, and he's traveling back to some well, early, you know, millions and millions of years earlier when maybe life was possible on Mars. I think that's a mistake to try to make this make too much scientific sense. Uh, John Carter and more generally the Edgar Rice Burroughs canon, it's not hard science fiction, as you alluded to earlier. It's fantastic. It's planetary romance. It's sword and planet. It's very much like the subsequent works that were influenced by John Carter, the Flash Gordon-type material, Buck Rogers, Star Wars. Uh, The Star Wars universe is is apparently science fiction, but we know it's really sort of a fantasy that occurs sometimes in space. And that's a better way to think about the John Carter stories. I want to ask about Edgar Rice Burroughs, the writer, because here we have this amazing imaginative achievement that had this huge effect on pop culture, we're still watching movies today that are in some ways derivative of A Princess of Mars and these Mars and Barsoom stories that he wrote. But was he a hack? That's a pejorative that's often applied to him because he wrote so much for these pulp magazines and he wrote so fast and sometimes sometimes he he, he, he let it overwhelm him, or at least that's the the reputation. Well, I've, I've used a couple of different terms that it's worth defining. I've described it as pop fiction, pulp fiction, popular literature. I think these are all accurate descriptions. And when you think about what a great book is, great literature is, you can you can reserve that category for uh, novels that are written to provoke all sorts of complicated thoughts or to depict certain complicated uh, emotions or themes. Uh, and that's fine. That certainly can classify as great books in in a great literature. I tend to think about something like A Princess of Mars, which is first and foremost an adventure tale, as a great work of popular literature. I've already alluded to so many different things that we can't even imagine what they would be like if A Princess of Mars had not been written first to help influence them, like Star Wars. Uh, you Some people may wonder where the terms Jedi and Sith come from. They come from John Carter. They come from uh, the the John Carter stories. The Jeds are princes of Mars, usually but not always heroic. 
And the Sith is a monstrous creature, a bad thing on Mars. And obviously, George Lucas borrowed that and many other terms and ideas from from John Carter and from other similar works. So that's the way I would describe the work. As to Edgar Rice Burroughs himself, by one definition, he was certainly a hack, and he said he was. <laughs> he was asked, "Why did you? How did you come to write?" You know, he didn't start writing until he for 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 pay until he was thirty five years old. He had tried so many other careers, a bewildering array of different jobs he had, from prospecting to being a cowboy to serving in the Seventh Cavalry in Arizona to um, working in various offices in Chicago and elsewhere. The way he actually got into writing A Princess of Mars, he, this was one of his many failed business schemes. He had a series of pamphlets to teach people how to sell. Of course, he didn't know how to sell, but he wrote the pamphlets. And you subscribe to them, and you, after about the third or fourth pamphlet, it turned out you were supposed to sell a product to practice. And the product that this particular company offered was pencil sharpeners. So here's Edgar Rice Burroughs. He's sitting in Chicago. He's sort of waiting for orders to come in on these pencil sharpeners, which I'm not sure anybody, any of them ever came in. And he was bored. One of the ways he got people to subscribe to his sales pamphlets was to put advertisements in pulp magazines. So he's looking through pulp magazines in part because he's an advertiser in them. And he's reading these stories, and he's concluding, you know, a lot of these stories aren't very good. I bet I could do at least as well as this. And so later on, people asked him why he sat down and wrote this first story, and his answer is, I needed the money. <laughs> I, he had two children at this point. He couldn't support them. Um, and so he, he once actually said, he admitted, uh, I write to escape, to escape poverty. <laughs> because people would accuse him of writing escapist literature, which he would freely admit to. So in that sense, of course, he wrote because he needed the money. But he, he made a lot of money early in his life selling these stories, and ultimately the Tarzan and other stories were adapted for film, and he made additional money. He didn't always spend his money well, but he, he had a good income for a while. But he kept writing. He kept writing because he wanted to keep making a good income. But also, he, he obviously enjoyed and said that he enjoyed the process of creating new worlds, whether they were on other planets or lost civilizations like the land that time forgot, which is also a Edgar Rice Burroughs creation, something that's happening on a, on a deserted island or in the middle of a jungle like many of the Tarzan tales. Uh, he enjoyed the process of creating characters and watching them have adventures, and he probably would have done that later in life even if he hadn't been paid for it. He liked the business of it as well. He wrote the stories and the books and, and helped them turn into comic strips and, and radio shows and TV programs, movies. He was a great entrepreneur with his own, with his own creative content. In 2012, long after Edgar Rice Burroughs died, he died in 1950. In 2012, Disney put out a movie called John Carter, which I rather liked when I saw it in the theater. John, what do you think of the Disney movie, John Carter. I enjoyed it, too. It took a lot of liberties. Some it probably had to, and some maybe it didn't have to from the original source. Of course, when you adapt anything uh, that's written in novel form, or in this case, uh, pulp stories like The Princess of Mars have a sort of a of an episodic, you know, there's a, there's a series of events, there is a cliffhanger, maybe sometimes literally you get to the next chapter, the entire book ends on a cliffhanger. And so it's sometimes hard to adapt 
things written in that form directly into a film, but I think they did a pretty good job. I saw the movie many times and enjoyed it. Most Edgar Rice Burroughs fans that I know also enjoyed John Carter, even if they maybe gritted their teeth sometimes at changes they didn't think were necessary. But they loved the, the imagery. They loved the characters. The Woolo was the, the just faithful Martian dog was well rendered in the movie. And Disney is, has been talked about many times in the last decade. Disney just did a horrible job of promoting that movie. And the director, while he made a really fun movie, he also did a horrible job of keeping the, the costs in line. And so it was a very expensive movie to make. It never made back even close to what it would need to to become profitable. And so unfortunately, though there were high hopes before John Carter premiered in 2012 that it would become part of a Star Wars-like franchise, uh, Disney decided not to pursue the second film, which would have been A God of Mars. And people ever since have been wondering what would that be like. Maybe someday somebody will remake it. My own theory is that the most likely way that John Carter stories will be turned into popular culture for people to watch would be as a maybe an animated series or something on Netflix. If you want to read A Princess of Mars today, you can do it in lots of different editions. So many that can be confusing to pick one. John, do you recommend a particular edition of A Princess of Mars? Um, not necessarily. They're all going to... The, the story itself is, is more important to me uh, than the the collection or the particular publication. I will say that the original story was actually called Under the Moons of Mars when it was published in All Story magazine in 1912 in a series of installments. And if you read that original version, you will actually miss an important chapter that the editor of All Story insisted be taken out where one of the characters explains her background. And in the subsequent novels, including A Princess of Mars, first published, I think, in 1917, that section is restored. So I wouldn't recommend reading the original magazine version. It, it misses some important context that the subsequent novels do. But as far as the particular collection, I wouldn't worry about it. And in fact, this is out of copyright. <laughs> so there are many different versions of this story, including uh, just full-text versions online of A Princess of Mars. It's very easy to read. Once you read it, you're going to want to read the other 10 books in the series, and they actually get progressively more elaborate, more interesting, more fantastic, and some of them really are, are among the best things that Burroughs ever wrote. Princess of Mars is a wonderful book. Some of the subsequent John Carter books are, are even better. John, how did you discover Edgar Rice Burroughs and A Princess of Mars as a reader? And then what's the case for reading these books today? My twin brother and I discovered the Princess of Mars and the John Carter series in a, a rather roundabout way. The first way we discovered it was there was a game. There was a there was actually a board game, a strategy game called John Carter Warlord of Mars that we saw in a store. We didn't know exactly what the origin, what, what the source material was, but we thought the game was interesting, and we ended up with the game. I think for a, as a Christmas present, and from there. Then we were interested in the books, but didn't know about them. And we had a friend who was living in a, in, in basically on our property for a while, doing some work. And he had the John Carter novels, so we borrowed them and read them. Uh, sometimes playing hooky when we were supposed to be working out in the field picking corn or something. I lived in rural Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. We would sometimes play hooky, hide in the cornfield, and read John Carter. So that, that's how I got hooked on the John Carter stories, and then, of course, read all the many dozens of subsequent uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs 
creations, including Tarzan. So why should people read it as opposed to watching a great movie set on Mars? The first thing I would say is that Burroughs is a, is a very entertaining writer. He wasn't a trained writer. He even worried a little bit in his early career that he hadn't had proper training and grammar. Uh, his editors didn't care about that. They sort of laughed that off, and they were right. So he has a wonderful gift of language. And if, if listeners today have certain assumptions about pulp fiction and what pulp writers did 100 years ago, thinking that the stories are very simplistic and silly, that's not really the case. One of the reasons to read A Princess of Mars is to kind of be amazed at the language, the use of language. Some of it is really rather florid. Um, there's a lot of big words in it. It's not, some, it's not dumbed down. It's not was not aimed at children. It's entirely appropriate. But one of the things, reasons to read this original book and not just watch all the subsequent works that are based on it or inspired by it is that you will see the beginnings of one of our most imaginative and most influential writers uh, in modern history uh, kind of learning and practicing his craft. That alone, for me as a writer myself, is a fantastic reason to read A Princess of Mars. But I'll, I'll end my explanation the same way I begin it. The main reason you should read A Princess of Mars is because it is a fun story, highly entertaining, even today. John Hood, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks for having me. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.